Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On the podcast, we'll explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Today, we talk with the president and chief operating officer of what many are calling the next dynasty in sports, the Golden State Warriors, Rick Welts. We all come to work in the same place. Uh, we have our practice facility. Our players come to work here every day. My office is 50 feet away from our general manager and our coach. We're interacting with each other all the time, and we include each other in the uh, in, in things that are not purely basketball. We'll have more of our interview with Golden State Warriors President Rick Welts in a few minutes. But first, let's look at the top stories of the week. Joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Evan Novi-Williams. Let's start with a family feud in the NFL. Apparently, some people are not happy with Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys, and I guess their blunt answer is, knock it off, Jerry. Yeah, family feud, top five answers on the board, and they're all Jerry Jones right now. Jerry, <laughs> Jerry, and Jerry. Evan, it's not going away. Like you, you thought perhaps they could fix this behind the scenes. Now you've got letters going to Jerry with the, the wording that, could lead to punishment for Jerry Jones. But you do wonder, why are they pushing this so quickly? There's no rush to get an extension done for Roger Goodell. He's got a year and a half left on his contract. Are they doing this just to spite Jerry? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a situation where they just don't want Jerry exerting this power. You know, it's it, they had an agreement made earlier this year. Every owner, including Jerry Jones, approved it. And now probably because his star running back was was treated by the league in a way that he finds unfair. Now he wants to go back and revisit that. It's a procedural thing, and I think the NFL and a lot of their owners, many of whom have sided with Jerry Jones in the past, are now saying, you know what, this has to stop now. You can't continue to hold the league hostage X and Y on your whims. Um, and it's, yeah, you're right, it's getting ugly. But the question will be, we saw the NBA step in on Donald Sterling and take his franchise. Now, of course, racial epithets publicly, that's, oh, yeah. that's one thing. Totally do you different. See, do you see this rising to the level of Jerry, this better stop, or we will invoke procedure to perhaps strip you of the franchise? I mean, it theoretically could, right? If Jerry Jones wants to die on this field, he, he can. I mean, it seems more likely to me that Roger gets his extension. There's some kind of concession in there that makes it look like Jerry didn't outright lose, even though he kind of did. Like and the then, contract terms are yeah, changed. Yeah, exactly. And, and, then we, and then we go back to the way things were, right? I mean, there's no question that the NFL is struggling right now from a business standpoint. Jerry Jones blames it on people kneeling and Roger Goodell. Roger Goodell, in this letter on Wednesday night to, to Jerry's counsel, blames it on Jerry. Um, they need to get back to fixing that as opposed to, to going after each other. Yeah, they need to work together and figure out what are we going to do to get younger people to watch. And I mean, these are the real issues of the NFL when the ratings, whether or not it's down across prime time like everything else, the fact remains the NFL used to be impervious and it's not anymore. Like Something is happening where people are not watching as much football. And if media is going to be the number one source of revenue in team sports, which it usually is, and moving forward it will be, this is an issue. Another major topic we're talking about, ESPN has launched Snapchat. Now, as old man Barr wants to know, what's the big deal about this? Uh, Emma Snap, as you would call it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are you on the Emma Snap? <laughs> I'm on the face place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, well, the big deal is, like we just talked about, the NFL is struggling to keep or get younger viewers. ESPN is facing the same issue. 
People are going elsewhere. Big New York Times Magazine story on Barstool Sports and how it is a viable alternative for younger sports fans who just don't feel any any sort of kinship with ESPN outside of the live games. Outside of real live programming, of course, you want to watch the game, you go there. But for everything else, the shoulder programming that supports so many hours... The kids are going elsewhere. ESPN still has its brand. It is the biggest brand in sports media, and they know that. The thing is, as Scott said, kids are watching elsewhere. So ESPN's plan, as we saw with the, the failed Barstool partnership and now the Snapchat partnership, is to use its brand and put that on the platforms or work with the platforms that kids know. We're going to see a lot more of this. Disney reported its earnings last week. They were down a bit, largely because struggles in its media department. You can read that as ESPN. They're going to keep trying different things to try and reach this younger demographic because as solid as they are with the older folks, they're not there with the kids. Next topic. What was the number one song in 1958? Well, Eben, you were born in what? A lot after that. Yeah, um, me, I mean, I'm say probably the, the only one born with a five in front of his number there, Bar. Well, don't you worry, old when man Bar will hits tell you. you. I, I don't know. <laughs> number one. Polare. Oh, oh, oh. Yes, Polare. Polare. And later on, they made a so so But that's not the number. <laughs> that's another story. The, the reason why we're bringing this up, this is the same time that Italy failed to make the World Cup back in 1958. Oh, a time reference. That's where we're going. Got it. Got it. So now Italy has failed to qualify for the Soccer World Cup finals for the first time since 1958. And it may cost the country about a billion euros. Well, not only, let's go widespread, though. No U.S., no Ireland. This might be a problem for Fox. No Netherlands. these These are some pretty important soccer clubs. I'm always dubious, though, on sort of these economic impact. Will fans know the sports bars won't be filled, but will they spend the money somewhere else? Might they go to a movie? Might they go to an arcade? Will they spend the money elsewhere? That's the question. I'm, a little, little, I'm always skeptical on these things. However, it is hard to overstate the importance of, ready, I'm going to get a little soccer on you here, Bar, the Azzurre. To the Italian soccer fan, Evan. Mm-hmm. And uh, talk about law of unintended consequences. As soon as they failed to qualify, shares of Puma fell slightly. Uh, so that's the, the, the jersey sponsor. They need Usain Bolt to come out of retirement. Exactly. <laughs> Eight years ago, Puma had, had 14 teams, I think, in the, in the World Cup. And now they're going to have two. You know, when, 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 team, when big teams <laughs> yeah. fail to qualify, there are a lot more than just the, the bar owners and the, and the local shop owners in their country. There's, there's a lot of companies out there that have invested a lot in these companies. Our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi Williams. And now you've heard of Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, and even Draymond Green. But Rick Welts? Uh, he's the president and chief operating officer of the world champion Golden State Warriors. And Rick, thank you very much for taking some time and joining us. Pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, you have been in basketball an awfully long time. And I love chatting with Commissioner Stern because he goes back to when I started. But. What was basketball from a business perspective when, well, you started as a ball boy, but like your professional life, what was basketball back then? Well, I think my organization was the Seattle Supersonics when I had my first uh, job uh, that wasn't a ball boy, and I was in the media relations department there. We had uh, 15 people, 
in our front office that did uh, everything that the 200 people here at Warriors headquarters are doing every day. So it was a it was a bit of a simpler business, and uh, you know I think looking back at that, the seeds were being planted even then, but. Uh, it doesn't bear much resemblance to the organizations we have in place today. When did you know there was an inflection point that this sort of mom and pop thing or tape delay, when did you know that this thing, the NBA, was getting ready to take off? I think it coincided with the time that Stern became commissioner in 1984. Uh, a lot of heavy lifting had been done, some of it by him up up to that point, you know, that's that's the point in time when the league was able to reach an agreement with their players that uh, any uh, player found using uh, a forbidden drug would be potentially banned from the league, and that was a huge statement for a league that had been viewed as, uh, you know, drug-infested, too black to ever be uh, accepted on a wide-scale basis by the American public, and, you know, franchises were, were more likely to go out of business than the league was to expand and you could feel the you could feel the the social atmosphere changing around the sport and i think stern's injection of energy and and uh, just the way he approached his job in the early years and then there were a couple of guys magic johnson larry bird that might have had a little something yeah i've heard of them i've heard of those guys as well mm. yeah but it was a it was a pretty good combination of events that started pointing us in the right way I remember when the Golden State Warriors had a total of about four fans, and the team wasn't very good when they first started out. And now, obviously, the team is gangbusters, just winning championships left and right. What changed for the team? Well, uh, you know, Joe Lacob and Peter Guber bought the team uh, eight, almost eight years ago now uh, for the unheard-of price of $450 million, by far the, the highest price ever paid uh, for an NBA franchise, and my uh, one of the things I always recommend to people uh, looking to purchase potentially an NBA team is always buy one that already has Steph Curry on the roster. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. I see why you've gone so far, Rick. <laughs> yeah, that that uh, you know he wasn't the Steph Curry we know today at that point in time, but clearly uh, to have uh, uh, a future superstar you know on your roster already was a great advantage, but. I have to tell you, like everyone in our industry had looked at the Warriors franchise for years and said, if you could ever get it in the right ownership and management hands, the market has everything that you would hope for to have a successful sports franchise, certainly an NBA franchise. The, you know, the, the, the world's future is being determined in this area. The economy is booming. Uh, uh, there is a, I would, I would disagree with you a little bit, Michael. We actually had amazing fan support while missing the NBA playoffs 16 out of 17 years. Uh, we actually we actually had a lot of people who kept coming to the game. So if we were able to provide them a better product uh, and manage the business in a different way, we had high level of confidence this could be something pretty special. So tell me about that, Rick, and we're chatting with Rick Welts, the president of the Golden State Warriors. The one thing you cannot guarantee to your fan base, your customers, is winning games. You, you just can't guarantee it. But you can guarantee experience. Is that what you focused on? Well, I think uh, what fans really care about is the direction of the team. And I think when, uh, again, when Joe and Peter uh, took the floor first time as owners and Joe pointed to the ceiling and said, that looks like one really lonely championship banner up there and we want another one, it at least was uh, put a challenge to the organization. And, and we, uh, you know, 
we we made incremental progress. Uh, it wasn't every every step wasn't forward. There were a couple of steps back, but I think fans uh, gave the new ownership group and the new management group the benefit of the doubt as long as they could see incremental success. And you know, it it started to come faster and faster. Probably the success happened faster than we anticipated. But uh, but as I said. Uh, it was it was here for the taking if we could just organize the business and the basketball team in the right way. But those fans did not give Joe any benefit of the doubt that time he stood at Senate Court and they were booing him mercilessly. And I think Rick Barry tried to go out and calm him down. Chris Mullen tried to go out and calm him down. They were just angry at some of the moves that he'd made. I mean, in the end, he was right. But fans can certainly be fickle. They were wrong. They were they were wrong in the long run. Well, uh, it takes a lot of courage to trade your best player uh, for a player who was not going to play for the balance of the season. So trading Monte Ellis to, to Milwaukee for an injured Andrew Bogut uh, accomplished a couple of things, uh, but the most important was putting the ball in Steph Curry's hand and making him the point guard of the Warriors. So, yeah, I don't think a lot of those fans in the, uh, in the arena that night would, uh, would still be booing if that trade, you know, if they could have seen the future and seen what that trade would bring. Today's game is an experience for the fans. They come and they see the Warriors and they enjoy the team and all that the arena has to offer. Can you talk more about that, about what it means for the NBA to offer a fan experience now for a sporting team? Yeah, I, I think that's central to how the league is viewed and, and why the sport has been successful. I think early on, uh, certainly ahead of the other major sports leagues, we took that philosophy that we had to entertain people from the time they walked in to the time that they left. And, Scott, as you said before, I think that we couldn't guarantee wins, so we could guarantee great atmosphere and an enjoyable experience. And that... You know that's why I think uh, the league. I think the league's secret weapon is what we call our team marketing and business operations group. It's not a it's not a sexy thing, but there are 40 wicked smart, mostly Ivy League MBAs at the NBA who do nothing, but study our team business and share best practices. And I think central to our success is this philosophy that our teams, in a different way, are in it together. We share every bit of business data. I have complete access to all the financial information for every team. We rank every team 1 to 30 in every possible category, including how we present the game in arena. And we motivate each other to get better, and we're not afraid to, to share ideas with com- what you would think would be your competitors. That That's a uh, culture that I don't believe exists at the same level in the other sports leagues, and I think that's a big reason for the NBA success. You are looking at moving into a new home in a couple of years. What does the prospect of not only a new building, state-of-the-art technology, downtown San Francisco, what does the promise of all that mean for a franchise? Well, it means everything. Uh, it sets the Warriors up for success for decades to come. Uh, you know, we have a we have a wonderful atmosphere in our Oracle Arena today. Uh, a lot of people don't know, though, that Oracle is actually the oldest building in the NBA. It was built before Madison Square Garden was built. And as great as it is, once you're in your seats, uh, going back to talking about what fans expect today in terms of entertainment experience. Uh, it, it falls way short. And we knew that we were going to have to build a new arena. The audacious move was really to believe we could get it done in San Francisco, which had, had never 
in its history had a world-class sports and entertainment arena. I can promise you that I understand why it's never had that, having been through the process for the last six years. But we will be opening the new Chase Center uh, uh, in the summer of 2019 in time for the 1920 uh, NBA season. Now, I'm guessing that process would have been even more difficult had you been asking for public money. What have you seen, I'd say, I mean, over your entire tenure, but in the last five years, let's say, of the appetite for public money for sports and entertainment facilities? Well, uh, San Francisco is at least consistent because San Francisco's appetite for spending public money on, uh, on sporting facilities is zero and has been zero for a long time. The, the San Francisco Giants uh, were able to, uh, to construct their amazing AT&T Park uh, using private funds. They did get public land in that case. It was Portland. In our case, we bought the property, uh, and 100% of the financing is private. Now, you know, I don't suggest this as a success formula for other markets. This is a very unique moment in time, and it's San Francisco. And I, I don't think the formula works, frankly, in a Milwaukee or a Detroit where we're building. We've just opened or in the process of opening a new building. It doesn't work. The economics uh, don't justify the investment. So I still think that while it gets more scrutiny now, uh, public funding is an absolutely essential part of actually creating a new stadium or arena, and, and local governments have to make the decision on whether that's something that, that their, their constituents want to see have happen in their cities. But I don't think this is a model for others, because I, I think it would be virtually impossible to replicate uh, maybe anywhere else in the United States. We're talking to Rick Welts. He's the chief operating officer of the defending NBA champion Golden State Warriors. What do you think about fantasy sports and the impact not only on your team, but the NBA in general? Uh, we love it. We think that it does nothing but drive uh, more interest in the game. Uh, obviously, you have to be, if you want to be good at it and you really want to undertake it, you have to, to study the game and study box scores and, and understand players in the league. And that, we think, is nothing but additive to, to how people feel about the NBA. So we, we, we really embrace it and think it's a, it's a terrific element of our sport. How do you go about your business at the executive level, Rick? I'm told that your general manager, Bob Myers, takes part when he can in the weekly business meetings. How important is it? And this isn't just sports and entertainment. This could be across all spectrums of business, that the different departments understand what's going on when the right hand and the left hand. I mean, you've got your basketball side partaking in the business side. How does that help? Well, it was, it's one of the reasons I'm here. We, I share the same philosophy as our ownership group does, that that, that is the way to, to maximize your opportunity as a franchise, both on the court and off. And uh, we're all, it, we all come to work in the same place. Uh, we have our practice facility. Our players come to work here every day. My office is 50 feet away from our general manager and our coach. We're interacting with each other all the time, and we include each other in the uh, in in things that are not purely basketball. As you said, Bob sits in my weekly staff meetings, and he's not there to to tell us how Draymond Green's uh, ankle is feeling. He's there to talk about ticket pricing, or he's there to talk about marketing campaigns, or he's there to have input on uh, whatever the business issue of the day is. He's a smart guy. He's been around the league. He interacts so intimately with the players and coaching staff that. 
those voices cause you to make better decisions as an organization. And, and in an organiza- a sports organization, it is critical that we have that kind of communication. And it's not the only way to do it. We have really successful franchises who completely separate their, their basketball and business operations. We just don't think that's the right way to go about doing it. Steve has been outspoken on a number of issues, but sports is political these days. Does anybody wince when Steve offers his opinions? Uh, We see the trouble the NFL is in right now. Perhaps statements of a political nature are not welcome in some franchises. It seems as if Joe Lacob doesn't mind. Uh, I think what's great here is everyone has a voice. That's part of our operating philosophy, too, is that if you're, in, if you're in a room or you're in a meeting, you're there because you should have an opinion on whatever the subject is, and, and, and hopefully not everybody agrees uh, or we're not dealing with very difficult subjects. The ability to uh, articulately express an opinion is uh, embraced on our basketball team. It's embraced in, our, in, our, in every aspect of our operation. I didn't realize you could actually see my Steve Kerr for President 2020 uh, bumper sticker on my door. I have seen the Popovich <laughs> Kerr 2020 t-shirts, though. I, I bought one of those as well. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I will say this. You know, in the, we're operating in an uh, extremely liberal political market, right? So the Bay Area, you know, and, and the, the, the thoughts that are expressed by members of our organization may be greeted differently than if I was in, you know, another market that was had a much more conservative political bent. Uh, so, you know, I will say that that uh, there has been zero uh, business blowback uh, for any of the things that our players or coaches have said. Uh, but I think we are uh, in a bit of a unique political environment here in the Bay Area. One question that pops in my mind as I think about the politics that seep in sometimes to sports should that be a marriage in sports and politics should the two be separated uh it never has been and it never will be uh sports is always a place where people who have nothing else in common but a rooting interest for the sports team can talk about social issues of the day and and really if you look back at the history of sports in this country sports always intersects politics um and and you know go back to jesse owens in the uh the berlin olympics and just you can pick moments in time that uh that that really big statements have been made but it's reflect sports is reflective of our communities and as our communities wrestle with difficult issues they they oftentimes get discussed in the context of sports and their sports teams so it's nothing new uh it's always happened and i think it'll always continue to happen Rick, are you surprised that Joe was able to buy the team and it wasn't Larry Ellison? <laughs> I think Joe was the most surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody knew Larry was there. His team, his company's name was on the building. I mean, if he really wants something with the pockets he's got, you figure he can he can get it. He must be kicking himself now, no? Uh, I don't know, but but Joe, uh, you know, they truly had an opportunity to outmaneuver. It was not about money because Larry Ellison could have always paid more. But I think is how the negotiation unfolded and strategically how Joe managed it uh, in a way that he got to a point where the seller committed to sell to him before before the opportunity for Larry to top that bid came in. So. It's talked about here a lot because, uh, you know, Larry Elson continues to be just such a, a big figure in the Bay Area. And, uh, but, but, you know, that's what smart operators do, and I think uh, Joe is in the right place at the right time and, and played it perfectly. Okay, I know 
owners typically dodge the next question I'm going to give to you. I'm hoping COOs and presidents do not. But like you mentioned earlier, it's almost comical to say 400 plus million. I mean, what a bargain, right? Uh, but the Brooklyn Nets recently traded at a valuation of $2.3 billion, and that is without Barclays Center. That is just the team. The Rockets at 2.2 to Tillman Fertitta. You have a new building that I'm sure, and I want to ask you a little bit more about this in a minute, spit off great cash flow. What in God's name are the Warriors worth now? And please don't say what somebody's willing to pay. Right, it becomes what the buyer is willing to pay. I'm sorry, but but are we over three? Are we over three billion dollars? I mean, it's a trophy asset. It's a great market. You have a new building. You have a winning team. I can't think of anything else that you would need. Yeah, I haven't heard anybody who would uh, uh, you know guess a lower number than than three. But uh, but is that the number? I don't I don't have any idea. And it's such a fun game around, such a parlor game around here because. Uh, unless I'm really off base, uh, you know, Joe Lacob's grandkids will be uh, involved in running this franchise at some point in time because this is this is the lifelong dream of somebody who's had every success in the world financially, but had one thing that he always wanted, and that was an NBA franchise, and he has that now and a pretty good one. So I think it's going to be a long time before uh, before anybody has an opportunity to figure out the answer to that question. And can you give me some specifics on Chase Center? What, from a dollars and cents standpoint, what is the difference? What do the projections tell you moving from Oracle into that building, whether it's suites, whether it's the sponsorship and naming rights? What's going to be the two, three, four X difference moving into that facility? Well, it's a complete transformation of our organization, going from uh, a team that rents a building from a public entity uh, 50 times a year to uh, having... uh, ownership and management of a building that's going to compete toe-to-toe with uh, the O2 in London and Madison Square Garden in New York and Staples Center in, in Los Angeles. So we, we are going to play at that level. That's been the goal from day one. It's the reason, you know, all in with land and everything else, this will be the NBA's first billion-dollar arena. Uh, but we also have to pay off that investment. Uh, so it's not, you know, while it will be a great business model, we think going forward, um, you know, it comes with, with a lot of debt just because, you know, we didn't have $300 million of public financing to make it work. But ultimately, the reason you do it uh, is to create the foundation for what will always be the centerpiece for a basketball team. And, you know, this guarantees that the Warriors financially will be competitive to to be able to do anything we need to do financially to remain, you know, one of the elite NBA teams, not every year in the future, but but much more often than most. See, Scott asked that question about the team value because we're both trying to put our SNH green stamps together to to make an offer to Mr. Lakeup. We've got this. We, we well, can do, do it sooner. Yeah. Do it sooner rather than later. It's not going down. <laughs> we do the ultimate LPs right here. <laughs> We're talking with the chief operating officer of the defending NBA champion Golden State Warriors. I guess it brings us to the next point about people coming into the arena and people enjoying the game live, but of course they can see it on television, TV rights. That is a big part of the value of any team. Can you expand on that? Well, I think, Michael, you've really touched on the, uh, the central issue for sports going, into the next, going through the next decade. Uh, I was in New York yesterday. We have a team advisory committee, and 
uh, were with the commissioner all day yesterday and, and his staff, and this is, this is the central issue. Uh, we are lucky in the NBA that the league, at point in time, they did sign uh, long-term agreements with uh, Disney, ESPN, and with Turner Broadcasting that give us seven years to figure this out. But clearly, when those rights expire, I think everyone would say it's highly unlikely that it will only be the same cast of companies who will be competing for the most valuable programming uh, in the world, which is live sports programming when the NBA's rights come up. Uh, who those companies will be who are going to be added to the equation, we're going to figure out over a matter of time. And we all, you know, it, it could be an Apple, it could be a, a, a Facebook, it could be a company like that that today has not yet taken the leap into buying major sports rights. Uh, or it could be a combination of partners we have now and, and partners that we'll be with in the future, some combination we can't foresee right now. But you're on it. You're on, you're on the most important issue, I think, going forward. Where we have such a ridiculous unfair advantage is we're the content creators. And we have, along with other live sports, the most valuable programming to drive uh, adoption by any system known today or, or going forward. So we will, I believe, be able to maintain and grow the value of those media rights, but to say today what that's going to look like seven years from now when, when the NBA's rights uh, are up, I think, is, is pure speculation at this point, but it's going to be a fascinating journey. And you also have, in a scalable media world, Rick, you have a global audience, which not everybody else has. How many years has it been since that front-page New York Times article where you came out as the first openly gay team sport executive? And what, what, what change have you seen? Uh, it was May of 2011. Okay, so we're about um, six, think, six years removed. What have you seen? Yeah, I, I think the biggest change would be... Uh, the fact that that story may not make the New York Times today, uh, because I, I do think, uh, while we're in an interesting time at this moment, uh, the pace of change and, and societal attitudes uh, has been remarkable and, and unpredictable at the time I, I had that story and came out in the New York Times. Uh, so I think it, the fact is it just wouldn't be a big story today. Unfortunately, I think we still have a long way to go. Uh, I'm still the only, I, I still have the, the title I had then, which is the highest ranking sports executive to come out. Uh, but I think there has been a lot of progress made in our society, some progress made in, in professional sports, and I think it's no turn back. I don't, I don't think we'll, we'll ever see that progress reversed. Rick, thank you so much. Golden State Warriors President and Chief Operating Officer Rick Welts, we appreciate you taking the time out and talking with us. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Takeaways from Rick Welts. I like the part where he said when he came out and he said he was gay and then the story came out about six years ago, today that story would not even make the news. It's now a big whoop. Yeah, uh, yes, important from a societal standpoint. But from a sports business perspective, I look at the media again and – We'd love to talk to executives. Almost every show we touch on media and what it means. And he mentions Apple. He mentions Facebook. What that media landscape and what the world is going to look like, as he said. Now, his words, and he's been around a long time, the most important 
story in sports. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Number of the week is 88. I love it. It's a surprise. I, I, you came up with it. 88. Like For me, as you know, the hockey fan, the only thing that pops into my head is Eric Lindros. <laughs> and I know it's not Eric Lindros. You're right that it's a number of, of a sporting figure. But uh, I, as you know, I'm a huge NASCAR fan. Dale Earnhardt Jr. is retiring. It's coming to an end. 88. It's going to be strange to see someone not driving the 88 outside right, of Dale Excuse Earnhardt my Jr. ignorance on things of left-turn nature, <laughs> but when was the last time Dale Earnhardt Jr. actually drove a car? No. I, he, I thought he, he was retired. No, no. This is it. This is the last part of it. This is the, We're coming it's to like the end It's like an official now. announcement he's done? This was, well, the, the previous season he wasn't in the car because he had the concussion issues. Right. And now he got behind the wheel. He had the last day, Tona 500, the last races were coming up. This is it. Now this we're winding down. This is the end. You know, From a casual sports fan perspective, then, like NASCAR will miss him. Like they've, They ought to find a way to keep him active and visible in the sport if possible. Could he be sort of like a Tony Romo-esque figure? He could be. Now think about it. It, it, Dale Earnhardt Jr., he's known uh, across the land as from a casual NASCAR fan. But now beyond that, give me a name in NASCAR because Danica Patrick is not going to be there either. So this is going to be an issue. I'm going to impress you. I'll say, Matt Kenseth. I don't know what that means, but I came up with a name. That I'm, I am yeah, That was good, right? <laughs> good. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with Jeff Freeman of the American Gaming Association, a, f- a full show on sports gambling, Michael Barr. You know I'm going to be there for it. Uh, You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes.